everyone, and welcome to the August 2nd edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with the Floyd Skirin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that a court trial rather than a jury trial is the correct procedure in a Superior Court workers' compensation insurance coverage dispute. Back in June 2016, Kirk Hollingsworth was involved in a fatal accident while working for Heavy Transport Incorporated. Hollingsworth's wife and son, plaintiffs Leanne and Mark Hollingsworth, filed a wrongful death complaint in Superior Court against Heavy Transport and another company, Bragg Investment Company Incorporated. These plaintiffs allege that heavy transport lacked the required workers' compensation insurance at the time of the incident. Therefore, they claim they were entitled to sue Bragg and heavy transport under Labor Code Section 3706, which says, If any employer fails to secure the payment of compensation, an injured employee or his dependents may bring an action at law against such employer for damages. Bragg and Heavy Transport responded by filing an application for adjudication of claim with the WCAB and contended that they were indeed insured. Now, only one of these two tribunals could have exclusive jurisdiction over the claims. And in a previous 2019 Court of Appeal opinion, that was captioned Hollingsworth v. Superior Court, or what they call in this case Hollingsworth 1, the court held that the Superior Court, which had exercised jurisdiction over the insurance covered dispute first, should resolve the questions that would determine which tribunal had exclusive jurisdiction over the plaintiff's claims. Following a remand of Hollingsworth 1, the plaintiffs asserted they were entitled to a jury trial on the factual issues that would determine lack of insurance coverage which is the basis of the Superior Court jurisdiction in the first place. The Superior Court denied their request for a jury trial and instead held a court hearing in which it received evidence and heard testimony regarding heavy transports insurance status. The Superior Court determined that heavy transport was indeed insured by a workers' compensation policy at the time of the industrial death, and therefore that the WCAB had exclusive jurisdiction over the matter. And since this determination ended plaintiff's superior court case, they appealed the determination to the Court of Appeal. Unfortunately for them, the Court of Appeal affirmed the trial court in the published case of Hollingsworth versus Heavy Transport Incorporated. Although jury trial may determine questions relevant to workers' compensation exclusivity when the issue is raised as an affirmative defense to common law claims, jurisdiction under Labor Code Section 3706 is an issue of law, however, for the court to decide. Citing numerous decisions, the court said that it is a general rule that in a civil case, Personal and subject matter jurisdiction ordinarily are issues for the court, not the jury. Because these plaintiffs asserted jurisdiction under Labor Code Section 3706, 
it was appropriate for the court, not a jury, to determine the questions relevant to jurisdiction. Thus, plaintiffs did not have a right to a jury trial on these facts. The Pfizer legal battle over the federal anti-kickback law is heating up. Three years ago, pharma giant Pfizer paid $24 million to settle federal allegations that it was paying kickbacks and inflating sales by reimbursing Medicare patients for their out-of-pocket medication costs. Prosecutors in that case claimed that by making prohibitively expensive medicine essentially free for the patients, with their support of charitable co-pay foundations, the company induced them to use Pfizer drugs in violation of the anti-kickback law. The problem for Pfizer was that they directed the charitable co-pay foundation to use their donation to favor Pfizer drugs, which prosecutors said was essentially the direct kickback to the patient for buying an expensive Pfizer drug. That case was one of many cases that were part of a federal crackdown that has resulted in a dozen drug companies being accused of similar practices. A dozen companies have paid more than $1 billion to settle allegations of kickback violations. Now, after that settlement with Pfizer, Pfizer sued federal authorities hoping to essentially legalize the same practice as it was accused of three years earlier. The Pfizer case against the government is basically that they have the right to communicate with the charitable foundation under the free speech provisions of the U.S. Constitution. A Pfizer win could cost taxpayers billions of dollars and erase an important control on pharma marketing after decades of regulatory erosion and soaring drug prices. A government lawyer said in oral arguments to the court last month that if this, legal for, this is legal for Pfizer, Pfizer will not be the only pharmaceutical company to use it, and there will effectively be a gold rush. And a professor of health law at Boston University said that Pfizer has a political tailwind behind them because of pocketbook pain by consumers over the cost of prescription medicine, even though it's caused by pharma manufacturers. The expert said that Pfizer's political message, we're just trying to help people to afford their drugs, is pretty attractive. And that's not all that's working in Pfizer's favor. Courts and regulators have been moving pharma's way since the Food and Drug Administration allowed them limited television drug ads back in the 1980s, in effect because the company had the right to free speech directly to patients. Legal scholars say other companies of all kinds have also gained free speech rights, allowing aggressive marketing and political influence that would have been unthinkable decades ago. Pfizer initially claimed that current regulation violates its free speech protections under the First Amendment, essentially saying it should be allowed to communicate freely with third-party charities to direct patient assurance. A professor of law and medicine at Stanford said it's infuriating to realize that out, uh, realize that as outlandish 
as that may seem, these types of claims are finding a good deal of traction before many courts. Drug companies are surely aware that the judicial trend has been toward more expansive recognition of commercial free speech rights. Pfizer's lawsuit in the Southern District of New York seeks a judge's permission to directly reimburse patient expenses for two of its heart failure drugs, each costing $225,000 a year. The federal judge's ruling on this case is expected now any day. The Court of Appeal ruled that correctional officers' off-duty weightlifting was not AOE-COE. In this case, Daniel Dysmone began working for the County of Santa Barbara as a corrections officer in 2006. Then in October 2007, he injured his lower back at a private gym inside an apartment complex on a weekend when he was not working and no other county employees were present. Desimone was attempting to lift 350 pounds without a fitness trainer. The injury resulted in permanent damage to his spine. He claimed that he was lifting weights in hopes of being promoted to a deputy sheriff. Desimone continued working as a custody deputy until March 2016. Then in 2017, he filed an application for disability retirement benefits. Two reporting physicians agreed that he was permanently incapacitated, but they disagreed on whether his disability was service-connected. Thus, the Retirement Board referred the question of whether the disability was service-connected to a referee. The referee then found that Desimone's weightlifting injury was not work-related, and then a trial court affirmed the board that denied his retirement benefits. Now the Court of Appeal affirmed the un, in the unpublished case of Desimone versus the Retirement Board of Santa Barbara County. Desimone argued that he was entitled to service-connected disability benefits because he believed that his weightlifting activity was expected by his employer and his belief was objectively reasonable. He supported this argument with the 1983 Court of Appeal case, Ezzy versus WCAB. In the Ezzy case, the Court of Appeal held that a workers' compensation claimant injured during a company-sponsored softball game was participating in activity in the course of her employment. However, the Court of Appeal there said that Ezzy was not controlling authority because it involved a workers' compensation claim under the Labor Code and not, as here, a claim for service-connected disability retirement benefits under different provisions the ones here were in the government code. The trial court was therefore not required to apply the Ezzy test to determine whether Desimone's injury was service-connected. But then the Court of Appeal went on to say that even under Ezzy test, Desimone did not prove that his injury was sustained in the course of his employment. They said that the specific activity must have a substantial nexus between an employer's expectations or requirements, 
or else the scope of coverage becomes virtually limitless. Accordingly, general assertions that it would benefit the employer or even that the employer expects the activity, an employee to stay in good physical condition, are not sufficient. Interface Rehab, headquartered and operating in Orange County, has agreed to pay $2 million to resolve civil court allegations that it violated the False Claims Act by causing the submission of claims to Medicare for rehabilitation therapy services that were not reasonable or necessary. The settlement resolves allegations that the placentia-based company submitted false claims for medically unreasonable and unnecessary ultra-high levels of rehabilitation therapy for residents at its 11 skilled nursing facilities. Back in July 2020, the Department of Justice announced that the Longwood Management Corporation and 27 affiliated skilled nursing facilities agreed to pay nearly $17 million to the United States to resolve similar claims. This newly announced settlement resolves Interface's role in that same alleged conduct. Medicare reimbursement skill, reimbursed skilled nursing facilities at a daily rate that reflected the skilled therapy and nursing needs of qualifying patients. The greater the patient's needs, the higher the level of Medicare reimbursement. The highest level of Medicare reimbursement for skilled nursing facilities was for ultra-high therapy patients. These are the ones that required a minimum of 720 minutes of skilled therapy from two therapy disciplines, such as physical, occupational, or speech therapy, one of which had to be provided five days a week. Government lawyers claim that Interface pressured therapists to increase the amount of therapy provided to patients in order to meet pre-planned targets for Medicare revenue. These alleged targets could only be achieved by billing for a high percentage of patients at the ultra-high level without regard to their individual needs. And now, our crime report. Some investigators are now claiming that organized international crime is behind some of the fraudulent unemployment insurance claims that have targeted the California Unemployment Development Department. Examples of these cases included a Bronx man, allegedly who received $1.5 million in just 10 months. And another was a California real estate broker who raked in more than a half million dollars within half a year, and a third, a Nigerian government official who is accused of pocketing over $350,000 in less than six weeks. What they all had in common was participation in what may turn out to be the biggest fraud wave in U.S. history, filing bogus claims for unemployment insurance benefits during the COVID-19 pandemic. But the problem extends far beyond a plague of solo scammers. Bots filing bogus applications in bulk. Teams of fraudsters in foreign countries making phony claims. Online forums peddling how-to advice on identity theft. All inside the infrastructure of perhaps the largest fraud wave in history. 
A ProPublica investigation reveals that much of the fraud has been organized, both in the U.S. and abroad. Fraudsters located as far away as China and West Africa have organized low-wage teams to file these phony claims. The fraud has been enabled by a burgeoning online infrastructure whose existence has not previously been reported to the mainstream press. Much of it is geared toward exploiting aging or obsolete state unemployment systems whose weaknesses have drawn warnings for decades. Communities have sprouted on message apps such as Telegram, where fraudsters trade tips on how to cash in. And ProPublica investigators reviewed messages on more than 25 chat forums and reported stunning examples of what they saw. Hustlers advertised their techniques, or what they called sauces, apparently short for secret sauce, for filing bogus claims along with state-specific instructions on how to get around security checks. Some of the forums have thousands of participants and regularly offer stolen identities for sale, alongside tech tips, screenshots that ostensibly prove the methods work, and advice on which states are easiest to game, and which are lit. A lit one is one that is still paying out on fake claims. Users have created two Telegram channels in which they trade tips for filing claims in Maryland, whose Labor Department recently said it detected some 508,000 potentially fraudulent jobless claims. Participants in those forums have been talking about turning their efforts to Pennsylvania, where officials recently said they have noticed an uptick in fraudulent claims. The head of a unit within Thomson Reuters that is helping states detect fraud and fake unemployment insurance claims said that when this is all said and done, he expects we're going to be counting in the hundreds of billions of dollars not tens of billions. He said one U.S. state, which he declined to name, received fake claims, all purportedly, from state residents that originated from an IP address in nearly 170 countries. They included countries historically linked to fraud, such as China, Nigeria, and Russia, as well as more surprising ones, such as Cuba, Eritrea, Fiji, and Monaco. And in regulatory news, the WCIRB just published its 2021 State of the System report, which shows the recent changes in premium revenue, claims and costs, the sharp and sudden employment drops in 2021 significantly impacted workers' compensation exposure, the number of claim filings, and claims activity. Premium levels dropped sharply in 2020 due to continued insurer rate decreases and the pandemic-related economic slowdown. Insurers charged rates continue to decrease and are now at a 50-year low. At the same time, average indemnity claim costs are rising, while average medical claim costs remain relatively flat. Fortunately, total written premium is forecast to increase modestly in 2021, 
with the economic recovery and moderation of the impact of declining premium rates, but would still be well below the level from 2014 to 2019. California at one time had the highest rates in the country. That was until 2018 when rate declines moved it from this top spot. It is now the fourth highest behind New York, New Jersey, and Vermont. But the impact of the pandemic on average claim costs in the long term remains uncertain. Almost 150,000 COVID-19 claims have been filed in the California workers' compensation system. The impact of the filings of so many COVID-19 claims in 2020 on claim frequency was in part offset by a reduction in the number of non-COVID-19 claims that were filed. The winter surge resulted in over 2 million infections statewide and the largest volume of COVID-19 workers' compensation claims filed during the pandemic. But as vaccines rolled out in the spring of 2021, the proportions of COVID-19 claims has been very modest. Currently, projected costs of COVID-19 claims in the insured system for accident years 2020 and 2021 are over $1 billion. Preliminary estimates suggest that the CT claim share of indemnity claims for 2020 and 21 are significantly below the 2018-2019 levels. Following the implementation of reforms related to lien filings in 2013 and 17, the number of lien filings has dropped significantly. The number of liens filed in 2020 is over 70% below the pre SB 1160 and AB 1244 levels. Recent industry combined ratios have been fairly stable with seven consecutive years of combined ratios below 100% between 2012 and 19. But the combined ratios since 2016 have been increasing primarily due to lower premium levels driven by lower insurance rates and higher expense ratios. So, the combined ratio for 2020 is the first one above 100% since 2012. Excluding the impact of COVID-19 claims, the 2021 combined ratio would have been 96%. And our next story comes from one of our contributors, John Castro, who is with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. John, please tell our viewers what you found about our next story. Thank you, Renee. The Division of Workers' Compensation has issued a notice of an online public hearing to amend the copy service price schedule for Monday, August 30, 2021 at 10 a.m. The proposed updates to the regulations include an increase of the flat rate for copy services from $180 to $225 for records up to 500 pages and includes all associated services such as pagination, witness fees for delivery of records, and subpoena preparation. They include several provisions to address improper payments such as a preclusion for medical providers to improperly charge for inspection of records, maximum witness fees from third-party release of information services, 
and an increase for bills not paid within 30 days of billing, there will be a procedure to object to services provided within 30 days of a request by an injured worker to an employer, claims administrator, or workers' compensation insurer for copies of records in the employer's possession that are relevant to the claim. Now, it is not uncommon for an employee's attorney to subpoena records even though they have been subpoenaed by a defendant. The 30-day waiting period is triggered when the copy service advises the claims administrator of an intent to copy the records from a specific location for a specific dispute. The parties would then have an opportunity to object within the waiting period. Once an objection is raised, the parties must meet and confer to resolve the objection. The DWC will also charge and collect retrieval costs for records requested under the Public Records Act. Back to you, Renee. The Labor Commissioner's Office cited three L Super grocery stores in Southern California for failing to timely provide supplemental paid sick leave or other benefits to 95 workers impacted by COVID-19. Some of the workers were forced to work while sick. Others were told to apply for unemployment while quarantining or in isolation, while others waited months to be paid. The citations were issued to Bodega Latina Corporation, doing business as El Super, a company with 52 stores in California. The 2021 Supplemental Paid Sick Leave, which requires California workers to be provided with up to two weeks of Supplemental Paid Sick Leave if they are affected by COVID-19. The Labor Commissioner's Office opened an investigation in this case after receiving complaints from workers and a referral from the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union representing grocery store workers. The investigators determined that the employer did not consistently inform its workers of their rights to supplemental paid sick leave if they were impacted by COVID-19. In some instances, sick workers were told to come to work until they received their test results, even when they had COVID-19 symptoms. To cover isolation time, workers were in some cases told to apply for unemployment disability under the paid, instead of the paid sick leave. Moreover, many were denied time off to isolate, even though members of their household had tested positive. Some workers were never paid for their time off of work due to COVID-19. And in medical news, the California activity restrictions are tightening as a new COVID wave spikes across the nation. The CDC now recommends masks for for vaccinated people indoors under certain circumstances. New cases of COVID-19 are popping up in San Francisco and elsewhere in the Bay Area. And what local media is calling clearly a fourth wave of the pandemic. And they say everyone is clearly anxious and exhausted. The latest surge in new cases arrived swiftly over the last two weeks, with the numbers in San Francisco still fairly low in the first days of July. 
The city was averaging 12.6 new cases per day in the month of June, and that rose to an average of 39 per day in the week after the July 4th holiday. Now, its seven-day average was 147 new cases each day, as 218 new infections were tallied in San Francisco on Sunday alone, with 196 the previous day. This was in contrast to the fact that there's not been a day with over 200 new cases in San Francisco since the first week of last February. The number of hospitalized COVID patients has also risen sharply in San Francisco in the last two weeks. So California Governor Gavin Newsom announced Monday that his state will be the first in the nation to impose a vaccine mandate on state employees and healthcare workers, requiring that they show proof of vaccination or submit to regular tests. California will also be requiring healthcare settings to verify that workers are fully vaccinated or tested regularly. Unvaccinated workers will be subject to at least weekly COVID-19 testing and will be required to wear appropriate personal protective equipment. This requirement also applies to high-risk congregate settings like adult and senior residential facilities, homeless shelters, and jails. A new study from the Workers' Compensation Research Institute examines the effects of must-access prescription drug monitoring programs and recent regulations limiting the duration of initial opioid prescriptions on various outcomes for workers with work-related injuries. The policies examined were part of an extensive effort by stakeholders and local, state, and national levels to address potential excessive opioid prescribing and abuse. In California, the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program is called Controlled Substance Utilization Review and Evaluation. That's Controlled Substance Utilization Review and Evaluation, which is now called CURIES, the acronym. And CURIES is a database of Schedule II, Schedule III, Schedule IV, and V controlled substances, prescriptions dispensed in California. The system is under Section 1165.4 of the Health and Safety Code, and it sets forth the requirements for mandatory consultation of the CURES database for physicians and other prescribers, and for reporting to that database by dispensers, such as pharmacists and treatment providers. So this national study found that must-access databases reduced the amount of opioids prescribed by 12% in the first year of implementation. Regulations limiting duration of initial opioid prescriptions resulted in a 19% decrease in the amount of opioid among claims with opioids. For most injuries, there was little evidence that workers increased the use of other types of care due to must-access PDMS systems. However, for neurologic spine pain cases, the, policy, the policies resulted in an increase in the number of non-opioid pain medications and an increase in whether workers had 
interventional pain management services, but must access PDMS systems and limits on initial prescriptions had little impact on the duration of temporary disability benefits captured within 12 months after an injury. This analysis includes information for workers injured in 33 states, including California. So that is all of our news and our events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcasts, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.